Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for creating us, for sustaining us. But most of all, we thank you for redeeming us. That we do not have an eternity of this ongoing misery to look forward to, but an eternity of redemption and freedom and completion of all things, fulfillment of all things. And we pray that having given us the vision for that, we pray that we would uh, do your work to your glory, to your praise. We pray, Heavenly Father, that, that as we uh, look to your word and listen to you speaking to us, that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you, and that you would fill us with joy and with love. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are now in the second week of a sermon series dedicated to our new mission, vision, and values at First Presbyterian Church. Last week, uh, we presented each of those statements to you at a congregational meeting, and I, I preached a sermon on our mission statement. And that sermon's available to you if, if you missed it on the sermon archive on our website. And the mission, vision, value statements are also available to you in a, a handout in your bulletins and, and also in electronic form on the website. If you have questions about any of these, again, there'll be an opportunity to ask those questions at the congregational meeting on the 26th, uh, next Sunday. Otherwise, you're always welcome to, to email me on the, with the, using the email printed on the back of your bulletin. This morning and, and next Sunday, I will be preaching sermons that provide the scriptural support for our vision statement. I'm not going to be preaching on our values during this series, not because they aren't important, they're incredibly important, but because they are largely descriptive of who we are. Whereas the vision statement describes who we want to be, it's aspirational in nature and therefore may feel like a bit of a stretch to us. It's a challenge and therefore deserving of a longer look so that we might embrace it. If you look at our vision statement, or if you remember it from last week, there's one main operative word that's repeated throughout, and that word is presence. It reads, over the course of the next five years, First Presbyterian Church will focus on the cultivation of presence, the presence of God with us, the presence of the community of saints, and our presence in the city. And it then goes on to list some high level, not very detailed ideas of how we'll go about first cultivating an awareness of God's presence in our lives, secondly, cultivating the community of the saints, and thirdly, cultivating our presence in the city. At each of those three levels though, the idea of presence shows up. Now the idea of presence may feel a bit nebulous. What does it mean? And where does this idea come from? It'd be helpful to have some handles on this word so you can better, gra better grasp its meaning and implication for our life together over the next five years. In order to do that, I've chosen a passage from the prophet Isaiah as our primary text for this morning. It was read for you just a minute ago. I chose this passage because it contains in it a promise to be present. It's God who's speaking. And he's speaking to his people in a time of great distress, a time of great loss and suffering. And in the midst of that, he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And perhaps the thing that strikes me first about this passage is the assumption that God's people will pass through waters and walk through fire. The statement is not if, but when. It's not if you walk through the waters and pass through the fire, but when those things happen to you. Remember, God is, is speaking to his people here. He's even reiterated his love and commitment to them. In succession, he reminds them that he created them, formed them, redeemed them, called them, and named them. You are now to be known as mine. Despite all that, they're to expect floods and fires. And this should blow a hole through the idea that Christians should never experience suffering, or the idea that suffering only happens to the godless, or that suffering will disappear whenever, the, whenever there's sufficient faith. The expectation is not if, but when. Paul, in, in, in writing to the Philippians, informs them that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Granted to you, he says, as if suffering were to be viewed as a privilege or joy, which is exactly what he says in Romans 5, where he says that we not only rejoice in the hope of glory, but in our present sufferings as well, because they're preparing us for glory. Christians, God's people, God's people whom he loves, should expect suffering in this world. We're not exempt from the bitterness of this broken world. Now, that does not mean a lack of control on God's part. God is introduced in the first verse as the Lord. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. The God who we're talking about here is the creator of all things, the one who's able to make something out of nothing and bring to life those things that are dead. There's no limit to his power. He created the world by merely speaking it into existence. His words are effective. And in this Isaiah passage, he's speaking words of release to captives that accomplish his purpose. In verse six, he says, I'll speak to the north, give them up. And to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. He speaks and accomplishes release to the captives. God is, is all-powerful, omnipotent in theological terms, which means that nothing lies outside of his control. He's able to order all things according to his will, and this is precisely what he does. He orders all things, even our suffering, according to his will. Tim Keller, in his book titled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, points out the obvious problem if God is not control of even our suffering. He writes, if God is out of control of history, then suffering is not part of any plan. It's random and senseless. Keller quotes the American anthropologist Richard Schweder in his book, who explains the contemporary view of suffering in the West that Suffering is separated from the narrative structure of human life, a kind of noise, an accidental interference into the life drama of the sufferer. Suffering has no intelligible relation to, the, to any plot except as a chaotic interruption. Uh, the problem is that this 
view of suffering is almost entirely unique to the modern Western world. Keller explains that in older cultures and non-Western cultures today, suffering has been seen as an expected part of a coherent life story, a crucial way to live life well and to grow as a person and as a soul. The reason it's not viewed that way in the modern West is because we've elevated individual happiness as the meaning of life and highest good. And from that perspective, suffering is not allowed to be anything other than an interference or a random and senseless experience. And such a view of suffering also contradicts the teaching of the Bible that everything lies in his control. Ephesians 1.11 says that God accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. He uses the, the freedom of human beings and the choices they make according to their nature in order to accomplish his will. Again, Keller writes, the Bible teaches that God is completely in control of what happens in history. And yet he exercises that control in such a way that human beings are responsible for their freely chosen actions and the results of those actions. Human freedom and God's direction of historical events are therefore completely compatible. Two stories immediately come to my mind when thinking of God's control and human freedom. They're the stories of Joseph and Jesus. Joseph's brothers hated him and sold him into slavery. But Joseph's interpretation of his great suffering at the hands of his brothers is that his brothers intended to harm him, but God intended Joseph's suffering for good. In fact, Joseph told his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. The other story is Jesus's, as interpreted by Peter at Pentecost. Peter tells the residents of Jerusalem responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that this man, Jesus, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. It was God's plan and the will of the people that Jesus should suffer and die. They were working in parallel so that the people retained their guilt and God yet accomplished his purpose. I admit it's, it's rather difficult to grasp this method of God accomplishing his will. As, as Keller points out, it's counterintuitive to both ancient and modern ways of thinking. But because it's true, it means that there is never a circumstance we find ourselves in when we are outside the reach of God. He's always holding us in his hands and guiding our stories to a happiness that far outweighs and surpasses the cheap counterfeit we tend to settle for. But this does all raise the question, if God is in control of everything, even our suffering, does he love us? And if you're wondering by now what any of this has to do with presence, then this is when you'll want to tune back in because the Bible presents a God who is not only a sovereign God in control of all things, but a suffering God. He joins us in our experience of the bitterness of this broken world. He does not remain afar and aloof, but puts on flesh and joins us. He becomes present to us and with us. In Isaiah 43, the love of God is, is proclaimed. In verse 4, God speaks to those who are suffering, and he tells them, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and because I love you, 
I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. He's willing to pay a high price in order to redeem his people. And indeed, he pays no higher price than the death of his own son. See, the redemption of humanity could only be accomplished through the obedience and death of a perfect human being. But no human being met those qualifications. No human being would ever be perfect. Therefore, in order to accomplish the redemption and forgiveness of humanity, the Son of God took on flesh, became like us in every way except sin. He suffered in the flesh. He was obedient in the flesh. He was tempted in the flesh. He died in the flesh. And it was this act of voluntary suffering that shows us the depth of his love. Keller explains that it's precisely because God is all-powerful and sovereign that his suffering is so astonishing. If God were somehow limited or out of control, his suffering would not be so radically voluntary and therefore not so fully motivated by love. That's why God's agony on the cross is so profoundly moving and consoling. The vision of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, dying on the cross, abandoned by his friends and even by his own Father, is a sign that we can trust this sovereign, all-controlling God. Again, here's Keller. If God is no exception, if even he has suffered, then we cannot say he doesn't understand or that his sovereignty over suffering is being exercised in a cruel and unfeeling way, or that he's a cold king who lets things happen without caring about what we're going through. The cross makes it impossible to say such facile things. Since even he has not kept himself immune from our pain, we can trust him. It's the presence of God with us that transforms our experience of this world for we know that we're not alone and that this powerful God who created all things is not a distant and removed God, but a, a God who cares intensely for us, so intensely that he's willing to join us and to be present with us. Now, this doesn't explain why we experience suffering, but it, there, are, there are various reasons why that might be so. But because God is both Sovereign and suffering, we know our suffering always has meaning even though we cannot see it. We can trust him without understanding it all. And we can cry and weep about it without bitterness. Because we know that as Hebrews puts it, we have a God who's able to sympathize with us because he experienced this world in the flesh. It's his presence that truly transforms our experience of this world and of God himself. And it's true that Jesus Christ is now absent in the flesh. He's not absent from the flesh, for he was raised an embodied human being. But he is now someplace where, we can't, where he can't be seen. But his last words to us before he left were these, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, look, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He left us physically, but his presence endures. For having returned to the Father, the Father and the Son have sent us the Spirit to be with us until the end of time. 
It's the presence of the Spirit, the enduring presence of God with us, that is a comfort and a source of great courage, making us able to endure and overcome things that threaten and distress us in this world. The presence of God with us is a source of immense comfort. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering, and he poses this question at the end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine? Shall nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are united to Christ. He is in us and we are in, in Him and through Him we're able to face any threat with courage because we know that in Him we are more than conquerors. He's our future. He's able to, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. After death, we'll be raised to be like him. And no, not death, nor the fear of death anymore. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is in the midst of a pandemic. When more Americans have died from this virus than in all the civil war. What a comfort it is to know what our future is that in Christ we are more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us from him. That he is with us always. The presence of God gives us the courage also to do what is right in God's eyes, regardless of the fallout or consequences. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested from preaching the gospel, and when they were told to stop, these common, uneducated men reply, replied to these elite, educated, religious rulers of the day. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Their lives were on the line, and they refused to compromise under immense pressure. It was a response that blew away the priests examining them because they were common, uneducated men. But the text tells us that they could tell these men had been with Jesus. How else could they be so bold? And Peter and John returned home after being released and they, they gathered the church and they prayed with the church for an enduring portion of the boldness they had experienced in their trial. And the text tells us that when they had finished praying, the, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, God with us. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, it's an understatement to say that we live in a time of great confusion, division, and social pressure to believe and behave in ways that contradict the gospel and God's desire, design for humanity. Everyone is experiencing this. Everyone is experiencing this. They're experiencing the suffering of this world 
and the immense confusion and pressure of this world. Everyone is experiencing this. You are, so are our neighbors, those who live in our neighborhood. And what we need is the clarity and courage that God alone can offer. We need God with us, in us. Our neighbors need God with them. They're experiencing the world as we are with all its pain and confusion and anxiety, and they need what we need, God with us. Which is why Jesus says, go. Go and be with them as I am with you. Be God to them. Show them and teach them that I'm not a distant, cold God who, who delights in suffering and ordering things towards their suffering, but a God who's in control of all things, but out of love comes to share in your suffering in order to redeem you and fill you with dignity and to comfort you and give you courage in this world. Jesus says, go. Tell them about me. Go bring them a meal. Go rake their yard. Go invite them to church. Go help them pack up their moving truck. Go play with them. Go. He's given you the necessary courage. For he goes with you. And in him you have nothing to fear. Go, he says lest you be found to be hoarding the presence of God for yourself. Go serve on the school board, at the Dogwood Literary Council, at, at Mana Center, at Ability Tree, at, at Bright Futures, the list goes on and on. Go and be the presence of God, for he is with you always, even to the end of the age. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.